Welcome. This is Legal Wise with Ted Eccles, a show dedicated to helping you find peace of mind through being well-informed and up-to-date. We want to help you defeat procrastination and provide information on legal matters that matter to you. I'm Ted Eccles, attorney, and you can reach us at LegalWiseGA.com. If you have a legal question, or particularly an estate planning question, go to our website and write to us. We try to address questions that you, our listeners, will find interesting and helpful. You can also join us as part of our free virtual estate planning workshops. To register, give us a call, 770-506-9092, or visit our website at LegalWiseGA.com. We have a great lineup of issues today on LegalWise with Ted Eccles. We'll answer questions concerning powers of attorney, nonprofit organizations, we'll discuss guardianships, disputes with neighbors, advanced directives, and more. So let's get started. We have a question from a real estate agent named Adam. He asks, if a sole parent dies and has a will that leaves her home to her children, what is the best way to deal with that? Well, Adam, this is a common situation faced by many grieving families each year. There are two primary options for dealing with property in an estate. First, the executor, who is the person appointed by the court to be in charge of the property of the estate, will most likely have the authority under the will to sell the property, including the real estate, out of the estate. When the property is sold, the executor can take the proceeds and distribute them to the beneficiaries. The other option is to simply write a deed out of the estate to all of the children as joint owners. This will result in the children having to agree on how to co-own the property into the future, including renting the house, selling the house, or allowing someone to live in the house. How will the expenses be paid? Who'll cut the grass? How will the taxes be paid? We should definitely use caution when putting property into the names of the family members. From my experience, it's very unusual to see family members agree to co-ownership over an extended period of time. This situation usually results in hurt feelings and disagreements among the family. Unless the beneficiaries agree, it may even require court intervention to ultimately resolve the dispute or sell the property. So once someone dies owning property, options become quite limited. In order to avoid having the real estate go into the estate, there is another option. A person prior to their death can create a living trust, name a trustee, usually themselves, and provide instructions to the trustee on how to deal with the real estate after the person passes away. These situations will help avoid conflict with the family and provide for orderly management of the property before and after the person passes away. So that's a great question, Adam, and one faced by a lot of people each year. If you have a question, contact us at LegalWiseGA.com. All right, Emily has a question. She says, my sister recently passed away. She was not married, but she did have a 12-year-old daughter. Before she died, she asked me to take care of her daughter. Can I become the guardian of her daughter? Well, Emily, 
I'm sorry for the passing of your sister. It appears that your sister had a lot of confidence in you, Emily. As to your question, guardianship is handled by the probate court. It is very important to know whether the father of the child has any rights. If he is recognized as the legal father, then he may have custodial rights that would prevent you from becoming the guardian unless the father is willing to sign a consent. If he has not been recognized as the legal father, you will still be required to petition the probate court and prove to the court that you are the right person to become the guardian of your niece. Every guardianship requires a hearing, and this process will usually include at least one other attorney, sometimes two, and this process can take two to three months. If anyone objects to your petition, then the court will listen to all of the evidence and then determine what is in the best interest of the child. You know, I'm sorry for the loss of your sister. A guardianship can be a complicated legal proceeding, so I encourage you to consult with an experienced attorney who practices in the probate court. Thank you for the question to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. We appreciate questions from listeners. If you have a question or comment, visit our website at LegalWiseGA.com and let us hear from you. All right, Bob has a question. He says, my wife and I bought our house soon after we married. Since then, we have had two kids and we want to move to a bigger house, but I can't afford to buy a new house until I sell my existing house. How do I navigate this transition? Well, Bob, it sounds like you're experiencing some growing pains. Navigating this transition can be tricky, but it is not impossible. You may want to begin by getting your house ready to sell, consulting with a real estate agent for advice regarding steps to maximize your house's selling potential is something you can do immediately. Some buyers will locate their new house and negotiate a contingency in their contract that limits their obligation to purchase only if they sell their existing house. This will allow you to receive your earnest money back if you are unable to sell that house. Because this contingency will likely have a time limit, you'll need to put your house on the market quickly and be ready to sell if you receive a good offer. Another option, which is less attractive to some sellers, is to go ahead and sell your house and prepare to move to short-term housing while you find your new house. I talked to a lady recently who had sold her house and she moved into something she called corporate housing, which was a completely furnished apartment that she rented on a short-term basis. So this option is available if that is attractive to you. This housing doesn't necessarily have to be an apartment because you may have some family members that will allow you to move in with them. Finally, depending on your financial situation, you should consult with a few lenders to see if they offer products that may allow you to acquire the new property with a short-term loan while waiting for your house to sell. Bob, congratulations with your growing family and good luck with your move. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. Janet asked the following question. If I am involved in a car crash in a store parking lot, can I get a ticket? Well, that's an interesting question, Janet. Generally, citations are given for violations that occur on our public roads and other public property rather than in private parking lots. But even if you don't get a ticket, 
The fact that the accident occurred on private property does not change your potential liability for damages if the crash was your fault. Your liability would depend upon whether or not you were negligent while operating your car. For insurance purposes, the issuance of a ticket by a police officer often provides an impartial person's opinion about who is responsible for the crash. If there is not a ticket, then the insurance company will talk with you and talk with the other driver to determine the facts surrounding the accident and attempt to make a decision relating to fault. As a result, it may be helpful for you to have photographs of the scene, pictures of the damage to your car and the other person's car, and other circumstances that help them to understand the circumstances at the time of the crash. One thing is certain. If you're involved in a crash, you will not want to leave the scene of that incident without addressing the crash with the other person involved. As a final thought, even if you don't get a ticket when involved in a crash, the claim against your insurance will likely result in your insurance cost increasing. I hope this information helps. Drive safely out there, Janet. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. All right, Jennifer has a question. She says, if an aging parent asks one of the children to help with paying bills, handling bank accounts, or other finances, what does the family need to do? Well, Jennifer, what I'm hearing in your question is a hesitation because of the possible opportunity for abuse by a family member or the risk associated with adding a family member to the title of bank accounts and other financial accounts. Well, your aging mother, like every other adult, needs a written power of attorney. A power of attorney is a document that allows a person like your mom to authorize another person to help with property and financial matters. With the power of attorney, the parent can name one of her children or another person to have access to her bank accounts and checkbooks so that the child can write checks and communicate with financial institutions. A power of attorney is a better option than simply adding a child to the name of the account. There are two main problems with adding a name to an account. First, the bank will assume that the person's name is being added because the owner wants to add an additional co-owner. When the aging parent dies, well then the bank will assume that the remaining owner That child now owns the account, and this is likely not what the aging parent intended. Second, by adding another person to the account, it exposes the funds in the account to the creditors of that child. This could cause a creditor of the child to take money that actually belongs to your aging parent. Well, these are two significant risks, so in order to avoid these possible problems, it may be a better option to have that aging parent identify a trustworthy child or other person and name them as the agent under a power of attorney rather than add their name to the account. Well, thanks for the question, Jennifer. To learn more about LegalWise with Ted Eccles, contact us at LegalWiseGA.com. While visiting, leave us a question that we can address on the air. Bethany writes in this question. She says, Hello, Ted. When I married many years ago, I changed my last name to my husband's name. 
At the time of my divorce, I decided to keep his last name because I did not want my kids, who were still in school, to feel awkward about not having the same last name as their mother. Now that my children are grown, I would like to change my last name back to my maiden name. How does that work? Well, Bethany, this is a pretty common request we receive at Eccles Law Group and is not overly complicated or expensive to remedy. Many states have statutory provisions allowing for a judge to issue an order legally changing a person's name. In Georgia, the Superior Court has the jurisdiction. The primary concern reviewed by the court is to ensure that a person isn't attempting to change their name in order to defraud creditors. After filing a petition and publishing the petition in the paper, the court will determine if any objections have been filed and then issue an order containing the name change. While this is a critical step, there is work to be done after the name change is complete. Updating your birth certificate, driver's license, and notifying other governmental agencies can take considerable time and even generate some frustration in the process. But Bethany, the legal proceedings will take a few months, three to six months, depending on the court calendar. Thanks for the interesting question to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. Stephen has a question. He says, I have recently retired, but I am still very physically active. I enjoy serving seniors and widows, and I want to start a nonprofit organization that provides handyman services to senior citizens with limited means. Where do I begin? Well, Stephen, let me commend you on thinking about your retirement as a blessing that frees up your time to serve others more. Our aging homeowners are certainly in need of someone who is capable and willing to help them live at home and maintain that feeling of independence. Many people treat the idea of nonprofit and tax exempt as being interchangeable phrases. However, while these two concepts are related, they are separate and distinct. First, nonprofit organizations are organized under state law, and the Georgia Code provides specific provisions for how these organizations must operate. If you desire for your nonprofit to be tax exempt, it's important that you make this decision prior to forming your nonprofit because you must include additional provisions in your organizational documents that satisfy the federal government's strict guidelines for tax exempt charitable organizations. Once the nonprofit is formed in the state of Georgia through the Secretary of State's office, a separate application is made to the Internal Revenue Service of the federal government. If the purpose of your organization meets one of the criteria established by the IRS, your nonprofit can qualify for tax exempt status and receive favorable tax treatment. Because this process is quite complicated, I suggest you consult with an attorney and a tax advisor prior to filing any documents with the Secretary of State or the IRS. Well, here at Eccles Law Group, We've helped a number of nonprofits successfully navigate this process, but it is not easy. Don't let the administrative aspects of creating an organization discourage you from your passion to help those in need. Stephen, keep up the good work. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. We have a challenging question from John. 
He says, I live in a house next to a neighbor who has large trees. One of his trees is close to the property line, and a plumber has told me that the roots of his tree are causing damage to my septic lines. What can I do? Well, John, it's always good to consult an attorney in your jurisdiction to fully review your rights as they relate to significant assets, such as your house, which for many people is the single largest investment that they've made. But here are some ideas to consider. Under most circumstances, property owners are allowed to grow trees on their property. Tree roots are a natural consequence of a growing tree. Unless there is some covenant or zoning ordinance controlling the property owners in your area, there is most likely no legal prohibition to your neighbor's choice of plant life in his yard. Likewise, as the owner of your property, you are free to manage the landscaping in your yard including removing rocks and other things that may be in your yard and most likely the roots of his tree that are disturbing your septic lines, so long as you do not disturb his property. Particularly in this case, where the roots are causing damage on your property, you most likely have the ability to dig on your property and remove the parts of the tree roots that are on your property. You would also likely have the ability to build an underground barrier that prevents the roots from growing back into your yard. Unfortunately, you are most likely responsible for the cost of the repairs on your property and the removal of those roots. But there are some cases in jurisdictions around the United States that provide that if your neighbor's tree roots are causing damage to you, your neighbor can be held liable for the damage and the cost to remove the tree roots. This line of cases seems to suggest that the tree roots continue to belong to the neighbor even though they've grown onto your property. You know, I can imagine an increasingly contentious circumstance where the removal of the tree roots on your property causes the tree to die. In that case, your neighbor may be contemplating whether he has any claim against you for killing his tree. So I would encourage you to consider talking with your neighbor about an agreement that includes the removal of the tree and working with your neighbor to reach a mutual acceptable solution that avoids expensive and lengthy litigation. John, I do not envy the challenging circumstance in which you find yourself. I hope you're able to work out an amicable arrangement with your neighbor. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. We have a question from Doug. He says, I recently visited my primary care doctor who directed that I go to the hospital for a procedure. Upon calling for the appointment, they asked if I had an advanced directive. What is an advanced directive? Well, Doug, I hope your health is okay. An advanced directive is one of the key foundational documents of a great estate plan. The advanced directive allows you to appoint a person to communicate important medical decisions when you are unable to communicate them yourself. It is only effective when you're incapacitated. Be assured, if you're able to make decisions, they will talk to you and not your agent. The advanced directive addresses a number of issues that could be points of contention among your family members. First, it allows you to decide who is making the decisions. If you don't have an advanced directive, 
various family members with differing opinions about your care may all try to communicate to the medical facility, creating confusion and uncertainty. In addition, with an advanced directive, you can communicate your choice of whether you want to be buried or cremated. You're also given the chance to communicate your choice of the level of medical procedures you desire to receive when you're in a permanent coma or at the end stage of a terminal condition. By having an advanced directive in place, you're able to minimize the anxiety your family could face in having to make these difficult decisions for you. Well, in addition to an advanced directive, a great estate plan can include a personal care plan where you communicate more detailed instructions concerning your preferences for daily care if you're unable to communicate in the future. Well, now is a great time to review your estate plan. Eccles Law Group offers several free estate planning workshops per month where you can receive practical information about all of the estate planning documents available to you. Doug, I hope your medical procedure goes well. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. I remember when I graduated from law school over in Athens, Georgia. Before our move, my wife and I thought it would be helpful to have a yard sale to get rid of a few things we had accumulated while we were in school. Like a lot of students, I had a photo of a red Porsche 911 in a plastic frame that while it looked great in my dorm room, probably would not be as attractive in our house. I sold the photo to a young student who excitedly left with the new find. A few hours later, to my surprise, he returned and wanted to talk to me. Of course, I thought he had changed his mind and wanted to return the photo and get his money back. A legal question, do you think he was entitled to a refund? Well, that's a good question. But it's not what he wanted. Instead, he pulled out a thin white frame with some of my family photos on it that, unknown to me, had been tucked away inside of the red frame. He wanted to return them to me as a kind gesture. I was elated. But this legal question comes to mind. Did he have a duty to return them, or had I sold them to him as part of his purchase? If I had called him up and demanded he return them to me, would he be required to give those photos back? I think it would be a tough argument to make that he didn't buy them both, the red Porsche photo and my family photos, when he paid me. He paid for the Porsche in the frame, which included the entire package. I might could try to convince a court that I didn't intend to sell the extra frame, but that would be a tall order. Didn't have a duty to inspect what was in that red frame before selling it to him? Nevertheless, I was glad that he returned the photos and I gave him his money back and let him keep the red Porsche frame for free. What a nice guy he was. Remembering his kindness and thoughtfulness is inspiring and encouraging to me even today so many years later. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. You've been listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or want more information, contact us at LegalWiseGA.com or give us a call, 770-506-9092. While legal advice can help, we know that true peace is found through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Join us next week as we answer more interesting questions from listeners just like you. The information, comments, and opinions expressed in Legal Wise with Ted Eccles do not constitute legal advice. The topics discussed and opinions given are general in nature and not intended to create any legal relationship or opinion about specific circumstances. No attorney-client relationship has been or will be formed by any communication or legal discussion, and no representation is made regarding your particular legal rights. For legal advice, contact an attorney actively practicing in your jurisdiction.